I mean, Nancy Reagan told everyone in the 80s that kids who played D&D were going to do, uh, you know, human sacrifices, so. I've never wanted to have sex with a pot pie, but, like, I'd have sex with that pot pie. <laughs> we're all weak to stepping on nails. Let me preface this by saying I wrote a script. Daytona Beach is, like, two mild inconveniences for being a post-apocalyptic wasteland anyway. So many of my tabs say semen. Are you guys ready for this weird, horny adventure that we're all about to go on? You can't handcuff me for skanking. This motherfucker gaslights you. Diet Coke and Sorrow will be chapter four. And against all odds, Kyle, we became those squirrely weirdos. This whole podcast is a very negative mouthfeel. Hello, and welcome to Debate This, a show where no one is right, but someone is definitely wrong. In this show, we take time out of our busy adult lives to talk about comic books, video games, and how if you put parallels to real-world events in your work of fiction, you are taking a political stance, no matter how much you deny it. Um, Damn. Kyle with the hot takes. <laughs> I love yeah. that. It's relevant to the episode today. <laughs> this week, thanks to a commission from our patron, Tommy, a.k.a. Humstradamus in the Discord, we get to bring you a topic that has been a pet, long been a pet interest of mine. Depictions of social issues and marginalized groups through comic books and superheroes. Which, like, sorry if I may, if I may interject. So, Tommy was also the proud sponsor of our Bomberman episode from last month. So, really? Tommy decided... Two sides of the same coin. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. One man's <laughs> Bomberman is another man's social justice in Marvel movies. <laughs> um, so, to help me through this history of allegory and superhero stories, I am joined by Todd... The Justice League dealing with actual rape, Thomas. Matt using Batman to examine fascist nature of law enforcement, Cole. And Andrew, women have just been horribly represented in comics until very recently. Sorry, all women. Henderson. Um, Man, are... Sorry, all women was actually <laughs> my nickname. <laughs> <laughs> um, those are three topics that came up in my research that didn't have a good sp place to slot in in this episode. But no, there are more things we could have talked about. Um, the ju the Justice League dealing with actual rape is the the wildest of the bunch. Um, <laughs> yikes! <laughs> yeah, it's a big yikes. It's a big yikes. It can be hard to believe in 2021, but for much of their publication history, the most common place to buy your comic books was the same place you'd get the daily paper or check out magazines. Um, as they had to compete with the eye-grabbing, sensational headlines of newspapers. It was not uncommon for comic writers to publish a, a story, quote-unquote, straight out of the headlines, to try and grab those same eyes, a strategy that still persists to this day in all walks of media. But since comics were works of fiction and not journalism, they were more able to take sides on these issues, offer their own sense of mo morality on real-life topics, and have the author's own beliefs interjected into the stories. Unfortunately, by being marketed mostly to children, this subjected comics, sold in the U.S. at least, to several decades of government-sanctioned censorship, which Todd is now going to walk us through the history of uh, comic book publishers attracting the feds and how they worked around that censorship. Boo, yeah, I'm, fuck the feds! <laughs> yeah, no, they're... Um, before I even get into them, they're super terrible. Uh, this is probably a good time. We make this joke on the podcast a lot, but we do recognize that we are four white men um, and we are here talking about a topic, a topic that is, uh, you know, marginalized people in comic books and they're an underrepresentation and mistreatment. 
And we just want to acknowledge that we understand that. Um, but we do think it is important that we have the opportunity to use this platform that we have created to kind of bring light to these important issues. And we're excited to talk about them. Um, additionally, it's probably worth mentioning as a slight trigger warning, kind of what Kyle somewhat touched on. The things that we're going to talk about today, definitely racism, definitely sexism. Mm -hmm. um, I uh, Kyle mentioned how sexual assault has been a thing in the Justice League of America. Hey, that happens in Marvel as well, and we're going to kind of talk a little bit about it. So that is just kind of a, a heads up that if any of those are sensitive topics, um, just maybe this one isn't for you. And we would love to give you a, a different, I guess, take on this. Uh, if you slide into our DMs, we'd love to talk to you about it. All four of us grew up with knowing the exact white guy uh, superhero we could map yeah. ourselves onto our entire lives, never having to question if there was one that, that matched who we are. And we recognize that. We hope that things get better by looking backwards at where we've come from. And that's what we're trying to do today. Yeah. And speaking on that trigger warning too, uh, we will try to put some timestamps in the show notes. So if there are major topics that you're trying to avoid, uh, we will try to make that as accessible as possible for you to skip those sections. If that's not the kind of thing you're trying to listen to in your video game comic podcast today. We're still going to have goofs, but <laughs> there, there yeah. will be goofs. This will not be a goof-free episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so let's start by dunking on how terrible white men have been. Um, oh, Ooh, so fuck the white men. They're the worst, yeah. right? The, absolutely the worst. So when we talk about comics today, I'm largely going to focus on the the big two, uh, DC and Marvel. There's obviously tons of other things. You have your Archie comics that they get joked about. I'll tack myself onto that disclaimer. Um, we mm -hmm. could go. We could branch out of the big two, Marvel and DC, and make this an entire podcast that lasts till the end of time. Um, today, we're just focusing on Marvel and DC. Yeah. Um, and so when we talk about Marvel and DC, when we talk about the heroes that you know, that you love, um, the ones we reference mostly on this show, they all have origins in starting in like the 30s and 40s. So we're talking about Superman, Arrow, Namor, the Submariner, Batman uh, and Wonder Woman were kind of the few early breakouts with other ones following in those decades after. Um, and all of the stories that came about in this time, they were all good guys versus bad guys. There was often very little nuance, um, though, obviously, like these were stories that very clearly showed their age and were without their missteps. And, and some of those would be that America was always the good guy, always like never not the good guy. Um, authority was always the right thing. Um, almost all heroes are white. I think all the ones I listed already are white. Um, most of the heroes were men. Wonder Woman was one of the few exceptions there that I listed. <laughs> and probably some of the biggest stuff early on that non-white people were often caricatures of their cultures. Um, these were often parallel parallel with issues that though that people of color were dealing with in society. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they were they <laughs> there are direct parallels. Like I said, they're the same things that you would see in most media from that kind of first half of the century. See also Mickey Mouse cartoons and Bugs Bunny yeah. cartoons. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I came across when I was researching uh, my part, a flyer with Superman's likeness on it saying that said, Superman says it's okay to slap a Jap. And um, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Now, yeah. now, okay. So actually that's, that's brings up a good point. So is it out of line to say that most of these comics were more or not more, more than less? Nope. More or less <laughs> propaganda machines. 
Um, yes, I would say they weren't always, but but definitely that was where a lot of it was. Okay. Um, and and I'm I'm gonna give you some good examples. Um, the, and so so the, yeah, go ahead. The disclaimer or the the like way I phrase it going into going into my part is if you think about a lot of the issues early video games had with storytelling, yeah. it's almost similar to comics where they're almost entirely made by white men at the start and um the government gave them a lot of money to mm-hmm. to jam some propaganda in there what if what if, if superman started with are you a bad enough dude to save the president <laughs> <laughs> well so and here's the comparison i would make the things that we're going to talk about today are definitely like rooted back a couple decades it's where it all starts the equivalent would be what we have grown up with at least in our generation um kind of the the 911 propaganda machine mm-hmm. that has been like you know military games and America's yeah. right and and you know how how you couldn't watch a cable TV channel longer than 10 minutes without seeing an army national guard commercial um it's it's that but it's it's unfortunately oftentimes racist or sexist yeah yep. yeah so as Kyle mentioned, you know, to jump off of newsstands, comics had to depict these things that were eye catching. So these are, you know, bulging, muscled men lifting cars. These are Batman and Robin swinging in unison from buildings, uh, people riding atop, you know, valiant steeds, uh, oftentimes carrying American flags. Um, and then in the 40s, a whole bunch of people punching Hitler. A lot of people <laughs> punched Hitler. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like uh, Captain America's punched Hitler. Superman's punched Hitler. There are like three different covers of Superman swinging tanks that could be any country's tanks, but there's a swastika on it. Which, um, let's be clear, punching Hitler is a good thing. We've talked yes. about some bad things from this era. Punching Hitler is a good thing. Yeah, um, but they waited is. until the 40s when we were fighting <laughs> Hitler, not the 30s when Hitler was doing starting up mm-hmm. his bad things. Yeah, it, uh, Matt is certainly right. Punching Hitler is always good. You should punch every Nazi. Um, however, that's about the last good thing we're going to say for a couple of decades, Oof. unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, then obviously another big thing was damsels in distress, you know, uh, women falling out of buildings being caught by insert hero here. Uh, and so at this point, since comics weren't really viewed as like a deep learning or, or you know, uh, uh, I guess any sort of reading that required any sort of deep thinking, um, they started taking fire from different groups um, that found comics problematic. And so this started with teachers that were literally like kids shouldn't spend all their time reading comics. It'll rot their brain, which is like not a vile approach to an issue like I could see you know, okay, well, kids should be outside running around doing that. And and I get that. Um, But what started with teachers being like comic books are bad for kids because they're staying inside and reading was soon uh, that horse then became uh, the jockey was religious groups that jumped on that. They're like, oh, comic books, comic books are terrible. They are going to spoil our kids. Their 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 morality is ruined because (laughs) of 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 comic books. So I guess we have the teachers to blame is what I'm saying here today. Um, so at this point in time, we're in the forties, America's coming out of world war two and, and coming out of world war two, there's this renewed focus on the well-being of youth of, you know, adolescence, you know, they've been through this, this turbulent thing. We got to care about the kids enter Won't a somebody man. Think of the children, Todd. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, well, there is a man who care who thought about the children. His name was Dr. Frederick Wortham. Oh, thank God. Now, yeah. Now that name doesn't mean anything except he it sounds means like a, a Captain America villain. <laughs> yeah, he does. Yeah, he, he might as well be. Well, so so the reason why we're going to talk a little bit about Dr. Frederick Wortham 
is that um, he was a social psychiatrist in New York. And his big thing was he was like, these comic books are the root of evil and they're ruining kids. Um, he was publishing articles and speaking out about how comics were having a negative impact on children. And the way his study went, because he did a study, was that he would like talk to these kids that had negative behaviors and he'd be like, do you read comic books? And they're like, yeah, I read comic books. Done. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, that was the through line, which is like asking someone who commits crime in the summer. Hey, do you like ice cream? And they're like, well, yeah, I love ice well, cream. You're like, well, ice cream causes crime. It's yeah. the same it's no thing. Different. As... You go ahead. Uh, it's no different than when Columbine, ha Columbine happened. Yeah. It was like, oh, well, they played Doom. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So did my, so my did every dad, kid. who's a minister, played Doom exactly. at the same yeah. era. And he didn't mass murder. Yeah. <laughs> well, that we know of. And so there's there's this whole point where uh, we're, way to we'll flame your dad, Todd. No, I'm not going to wow. cut that. That's hilarious. My, uh, my no one in my family listens to this podcast anyway. Um, so there was this there. There's this guy who who's a social psychiatrist and he's like comic books, the root of all evil, they're ruining our kids. Anyway, he starts to beat the drum to try and get legislation reeling in comics and what they can do, what they can talk about. And it didn't really get any traction. Um, and so at that point, he's like, well, I know what I'll do since I'm a psychiatrist and I'm a I'm a doctor. If I'm not researching, I'm not doing anything. If I'm not writing, I'm not in existence. And so he wrote a book called Seduction of the Innocent, which what a title. Yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> I, I could yeah. tell you before we talk about the podcast, I could have just said that title and said, what do you think that's about? Well, it's it's about how kids are ruined by comic books. So he did that in the 50s. And then at that point, the the Senate subcommittee on juvenile delinquency started an investigation into the effects of comics and children as a form of mass media. Um, and so the reason why I tell you all of this is because all of this work leading into the 50s ultimately led to the creation of the Comics Code Authority in 1954, which is something mm. we've kind of talked about a little bit in this podcast before. Now, what does any of this have to do with social issues or marginalized, or marginalized groups in comics, um, you ask, because you're obviously as invested in this as we are? Well, a couple things. So, so this is going to be a two-pronged piece here. So one, I will tell you, the listener, and you other three on this episode, I did not look up the U.S. Senate composition in 1954, the ones that decided we needed the Comics Code Authority. I'm going to make an assumption that it was probably a lot of white men. It yeah, still I mean, is today in 2021. Yeah. It still largely is today. Boy, that's a safe bet. Yeah. yeah. So, so feel free to fact check me in the comments, um, but I'm guessing it was a lot of white men. And so that's point one. That's why it's important to know that the Comics Code Authority was made then, because it was probably influenced by a bunch of white dudes. And then, you know, if your next guess was, uh, are the rules established that do they favor the, the current existing authority of straight white authoritative men? You'd be correct. <laughs> now, the Comics Code Authority rules are like 20 or 30 different like bullet points of everything a comics, you know, comic needs to do to get the to get the stamp of approval from Comics Code Authority, which is a thing that comics all wanted back then, because, as Kyle had said, they're all being sold on newsstands. There weren't really like dedicated comic shops, hobby shops at the time. So here's just a couple of bullet points from the Comics Code Authority. Let me, let me finish that yeah. thought. So like if a comic didn't have the Comics Code Authority stamp on it. It didn't get displayed. It got put in like 
the back shelf, the back with, room of a blockbuster with the porn. Like, yeah, those. <laughs> so you you wanted the Comics Code Authority unless you were writing a porn comic. That's um, listeners, listeners, this episode, what you don't get to see is Kyle waving his hands frantically <laughs> as he was excited to share this tidbit of knowledge, uh, <laughs> which which I'm excited that you did. So so just, you know, a couple points that I think are really relevant. So you really get like the gist of what the Comics Code Authority was doing. So general standard A3 lists that policemen, judges, government officials and respected institutions shall never be presented in such a way to create disrespect for established authority. Matt is visibly shaking his head. <laughs> Matt, Two big so thumbs mad. down, champ. Don't like that. Yeah, Don't like that one bit. Yeah, there's there's just a whole section over how policemen and authority and judges are always good. Criminals are never bad. You can't ever be empathetic towards a criminal. Criminals are always bad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. The, bad, the bad guy's bad. No, yeah. no, no gray. Um, uh, general standard C3. Uh, although slang and colloquial colloquialisms are acceptable, excessive use should be discouraged, and whenever possible, good grammar shall be employed. Now, golly gee, to, Todd. Yeah, <laughs> I wonder. I, yeah, if you can, if you can imagine, I feel like that's that's code for a lot of things. Mm. Isn't yeah. there that uh, that one panel of like Superman and Batman that's like? Come over here and get some of this hard dick because hard dick was a slang term for like gossip or something like that. For like good clues or something. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) that one somehow got by because those heroes are both white. Uh, So there's also a section under religion. So religion bullet point one. It's the only bullet point under religion. Ridicule or attack against any religious or racial group is never permissible, which is pretty funny to think about because I'm pretty sure the offensive comics to different cultures did not end in the 50s when this was created. Yeah, that's like that's really weird to see it explicitly written out like that in 1954. Um, yeah, because like I, Fing Fang Foom is a character we've referenced uh-huh. a handful of times, <laughs> but it's it's all about what they felt at the time right. was reasonable. And again, mm-hmm. if you consider these as propaganda machines and mm-hmm. it's not considered racist yeah. to have a dragon named Fing Fang Foom. Yeah. Then well that's not good. You can't be racist against a dragon, Andrew. Yeah. yeah. It's a yeah. it's a well and and then the mm-hmm. ar- other argument at the time was it's one it's one bad person who's bad, not Mm-hmm. He who happens to be Asian, not and it's all not a Asian racial group. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, never mind Race, that racism is racism is in the eye of the of the race. Never mind that there are no <laughs> other Asian characters in this property, but yeah. but it's not because he's Asian. Yeah, yeah. So these these last three are going to kind of go together. Um, so there is one under costume. Uh, costume bullet point four: Females shall be drawn realistically without exaggeration of any physical qualities. Oops. Now, <laughs> neat. What's, what's really funny about this one to me is obviously like is you've we're gonna, read a comic in the last yeah. thir- from the last <laughs> yeah. thirty years. We've all and again like you we've all seen covers of comics that you're like a man wrote that like uh-huh. there's no way that mm. that a dude in his dark basement didn't write that. The thing that caught me though, there's not a single word about how men should be drawn every man is superman every man is batman so like obviously we don't need to dictate how men are drawn it got to a point where they had to put it in the description of like powers mutants get is that an effect of the x gene is that you're just shredded like you're immediately (laughs) shredded 
See, we just call that getting hired by Marvel Cinematic Universe. That's yeah. just the thing now. Yeah. Um, there is an entire section just titled Marriage and Sex. There are seven bullet points. I won't read through them, but you can just guess that they are all like male, female couples. Family is good. Divorce is bad. Um, there should be no unhappiness in marriage. Uh, there's not anything that explicitly talks about LGBTQ relationships. However, there is a bullet point that talks about sex perversion. So my guess is, and, and we'll talk a bit about this because they had a pretty staunch stance against uh, same sex relationships or identity until the 90s or so. And my guess is they covered that under, quote, sex perversion, because, again, these are a bunch of men in suits in a boardroom saying this is what we think. From a slightly different angle on just, you know, there being a whole section about marriage and sex and divorce is bad and all that. It makes mm -hmm. me wonder if that's why so many origin stories were and then their parents died and uh, not and then their dad dipped out or gotcha. and then their parents marriage felt like the only way to come from a negative upbringing mm, is to yeah. lose your parents. You can't if there's no unhappiness in marriage, there's no unhappiness in family. You can't yeah. have a negative upbringing without your parents dying. Um, not that not that that's better. It's just an interesting <laughs> outcome of that. Yeah. Um, uh, Spider-Man's uh, aunt is an aunt is a single parent because Uncle Ben died. Was murdered right. by a bad guy not because mm -hmm. May and Ben mm -hmm. split up. Yep. Mm hmm. Um, there, and then the last piece that I added, um, the, the, there's another bit about women just to really drive home the point about how poorly women were treated. Uh, there's a quote that I had read at one point that the comics code authority, I don't see it in their official list in 1954, so it might've been added later, but that is, and if, that is the quote, the inclusion of females in stories is specifically discouraged women when used in plot structure should be secondary in importance. Whoa. Now, wow. I'll talk a bit about yeah, I'll talk wow. a bit about this later because it again, it's not listed in the official like 1954 bullet points that I reviewed, but I saw it referenced a number of times. Um and 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 it's 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 talked about. I mean, it's, it's uh, in the New Testament of the Comics Code Authority. <laughs> uh, uh lastly, a side note for the Comics Code Authority, there's also a whole code over advertising matter. Um and that one of them is just funny is advertising the sale of fireworks is prohibited. So don't don't you advertise fireworks in your comic book. I mean, there were like comic books were that they had that page of like sea monkeys next to x-ray yeah. glasses next yeah. to, like you know, just whatever junk someone could sell to kids for cheap. So I'm I'm not going to keep the lights on. I'm mm -hmm. not surprised they had to put a rule in there. It's like, yeah, don't sell kids fireworks through through their comic books. Because that's how we're going to end up with a lot of fingerless kids. Mm -hmm. Women should be secondary in importance. Well, holy so, shit. So hold that, hold that thought because we're going to come back to it. So like okay. talking about these marginalized groups, right? So, so we'll talk about uh, some of the people of color that have been marginalized, um, women that are being marginalized, and then members of LGBTQ um, plus population that are marginalized. So... All of this talk gets us into the 50s. And so based upon what we've already talked about, it's not really a stretch to see, you know, what groups were being oppressed by these rules. I mean, it, and sometimes it comes right out and say it and other times it says it in, in hidden code. Um, so we are finding ourselves, you know, just a few decades after women's suffrage and a decade before the Voting Rights Act was even put in. And it's all firmly in the civil rights movement. 
And so you take all this and, and, you know, largely feeds into this white savior complex that comic books had been just largely feeding Americans now for decades. Um, I mean, all media, even, like radio, yeah, oh, for radio sure. programs yeah. and everything was yeah. just like, how great are we for doing this for the the marginalized groups were actually oppressing yes <laughs> well and and another bit about the comics code authority so all of this kind of comes to a big head when the comics code authority tries to stop a story from being printed where the main character was black and so to give you some more context to that it was a story about an astronaut um who was like at a planet that was full of robots but the robots were super racist and the astronaut was like well we can't bring this planet into our fold because they're all racist and I think the cover was like an astronaut helmet with a black man who was sweating. And the Comics Code Authority was like, well, we can't tell this story. You can't you can't do that. And the writer was like, well, why? And they wouldn't come out and just say like, well, because he's a, a, a black protagonist who's under duress, but also correct. And racism is bad. Like you can't mm -hmm. they wouldn't say that. And so what was really interesting was the the guy ended up um he, he was like oh i see the problem he's under duress what if he's just not sweating will that solve the problem and they're like uh it won't and so <laughs> um what's funny though is i forget the guy's name he like left the comics code authority like agreement he wasn't going to be part of that anymore and he started mad magazine which oh, definitely neat. did oh. not seek yeah which definitely did not seek the comics code authority to do any of their printing that's really cool actually yeah, yeah. Yeah, huh. it is wild. It is always wild when we when I look back through like what was shocking in history and how mild it it is considered today. <laughs> I think about yeah. that a lot with like the band Kiss and yeah. how parents were terrified of their children listening to Kiss. Kiss is the the shittiest dad rock. <laughs> like Love Gun is about a penis, Kyle. Yeah. <laughs> like, I I'm just always blown away by what is shocking. And Mad Magazine makes that list too. Cause like it's not it's not kiss, but it's it's not shocking. I mean, I mean Nancy Reagan told everyone in the 80s that kids who played D&D &D were gonna do uh you know human sacrifices. So mm -hmm. history yeah. history the, the names yeah. change, but history repeats itself. <laughs> yep. You know, we get we get from all of this, and, and what we do start to see is that comics do begin to to become a little bit more diverse, but in a way that you can tell that it the the strings are still being pulled, the levers are still being pulled by white men. Um, you know, you get all these uh, hurtful depictions uh, in the 40s. What we do see is we get to the 60s with Marvel introducing um, Marvel and DC, both introducing some more like uh, periphery background um, black characters. So we get Gabe Jones of the Howling Commando. Um, we also get Jackie Johnson, um, who is a side character in a story from a DC comic who integrates his military squad. Um, we also start to get characters like the um, the Prowler from Spider-Man, um, Miles' uncle. You know, these characters that aren't like on the front, but are starting to like appear. Ultimately, in the back half of the 60s, we do get characters like the Black Panther, though he was originally named the Coal Tiger, which I didn't know, which is weird. Concepted as the Coal ah, Tiger. Never saw print as mm. the, uh, under that name. 
But well, Tiger is kind of a cool name. It's, yeah, it's yeah, not it's terrible. Bad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we also then around this time get Sam Wilson's Falcon, which again, kind of back to what I said about how we're getting these heroes of color, though you can still tell the the levers are being pulled by by likely a bunch of white men. Because at one point, uh, Sam Wilson was retconned for his origin to be applied that he was a pimp at one point. Oh, oh not necessary. That. Not soup. Not not necessary at all. But, no. it, it, you know, um, we are also then at this point getting DC gives us John Stewart, which, Andrew, there are multiple Green Lanterns. <laughs> um, yeah. And so John Stewart is the first uh, non-white slash. And I also added this non-alien Green Lantern because, like, you know, he's he's there are many aliens and maybe that was a bunch of white dudes way of being like, look at the diversity. Well, yeah, no, not at all. Nope. Yeah. There were um, three white, three or four green lanterns before we got a black green. There lantern. Were, there is. Well, yeah, there was three because there is the original green lantern, the way old mm-hmm. one. Yep. Um, there is. Then there was Hal Jordan. And I think Kyle Rayner, um, Guy Gardner, Guy Gardner. That's right. Kyle Rayner. Kyle Rayner was after John Stewart. Yeah. And then, and then anyway, Kyle Jordan, Cal Jordan, <laughs> Cal, Kal Jordan, Kyle Stewart, um, Kyle um, Stewart. Uh, anyway, this is a stupid bit that we're doing. Um, this is so what was also interesting that John Stewart initially um, and this is this is a direct quote from an article that I had read. There was a push to give him a stereotypical, quote, slave name. And the slave. Yeah, I know it's terrible. The the name was something like Washington Jefferson, like like something of like early founding father president. Yes. Or like or like Washington Lincoln or something stupid. That that doesn't Um, feel good. It really shows you how far the world has come to because you know that like there were people in that room who thought that that was a well-intentioned thing to do. And it is just so far. I mean, I'm sure there were people in the room who did not mean it to be well-intentioned, but there are Mm -hmm. people who did. And it's just like, God damn, it's so far off the mark because that was an idea that came together in an echo chamber of white dudes. More often Mm -hmm. than not, these were the like best attempts by these white writers to Mm -hmm. be inclusive and be like progressive. Like they, they were legitimately trying really hard at this point. Yeah. Um, all the, like uh, Jack Kirby, Stan Lee, both mm-hmm. were very big, like um, civil rights, like supporters. They just didn't have a great, the best idea of how, what that looks like. Yeah. Cause it was the sixties. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think it's worth noting that at this point in time, uh, after all that, the very first black hero in at least the the two main um, comics entities to get their own title as a lead was Luke Cage for, in uh, in Heroes for Hire. Um, and that was early 70s. And then it was like 75 DC um, penned their Black Lightning that followed yeah. as their first like hero color. So, I mean, we're talking like, like I said, early 70s, mid 70s before a hero of color is getting their own comic book. Superman. Superman debuted in 38. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was almost 25 years before we got our first um, black led title after Superman. Yeah. Wait, what? Well, you said you said 38. This is like 30 some years. 30 years. Sorry, I'm, I'm yeah. not yeah. a math guy. Yeah, we, we knew what you meant. Um, yeah. I have a quick question. So mm-hmm. Black Lightning, is that the beginning of the 
the electricity user is black trope. <laughs> it is, in it, fact, the beginning of yeah. that trope. Because that's a weird trope, and that I've is not a weird thought trope. of it. Yeah. And, All right. I've and never, I, I've yeah, I've never put that plug in the wall. Well, and I hadn't either until I saw it literally today. So one of the trends on TikTok as of this recording is. How do you know that I'm the blank Pokemon trainer? And yeah. Like, and it's like a guy in a, in a bathing suit is like, I'm the water trainer. But there was like a one that got, one guy is just like a, you know, black content creator is like, how do you know that I'm the electric, the lightning trainer is like black dude. Was like, <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. I will say part of that is this establishing the trope. And then the other part of that is um, static shock was created mm-hmm. in 93 by black authors and I would not be mm. surprised if that was an homage uh, to yeah, sure. to that which then just kind of re-upped yeah. the the trope going forward. Yeah, I mean tropes tropes again like they start from a good place. It's like it starts mm-hmm. from inspiration but then turns into a trope. Anyway. Well, so to change gears a little bit, so we we talked about the X-Men. We're going to talk about them some more. So even the X-Men who did their major debut in the 60s, um, they even end up leaving a lot to be desired. When you look at the initial first team, the initial team of X-Men, it was all white people. I mean, aside from like Beast, who I guess if you want to argue. Like, <laughs> no, Beast was no, but Beast, Beast was white. Beast, yeah, white. So Beast yeah. is a white man. Yeah, Beast was yeah, a human so, man. Yeah, so they're they're all white until like the second the, the quote second class of X-Men join them, which is when Storm joins. Which and she is the, the first black 75. woman. Which even then, um, this came up what what I th- what I was reading. They did that first push, the second class, like you said, that was still just like they they expanded it and tried for inclusivity. It was mm-hmm. still only filled out by people from white people from East, like western european nations it wasn't sure. it wasn't there there still were no um south american or latino mm-hmm. characters asian characters it was a russian guy a west german guy um and and even then it was a couple more years before storm joined after that like it wasn't she wasn't in that initial first class with um colossus and nightcrawler yeah. and and them yeah you know and i i think this is all important to say because we we and i mean like we as in society we as in us for the do the show we point to x-men a lot as parallels for you know diversity and acceptance and you know how people are treated that are different out of the out of the quote-unquote norm in society which like it largely is but even still, uh, it still is plagued by this whole like early on. This is this is a white person's game of whiteness. And they, uh, you know, even if back then they were, quote, trying their best, looking back on it with 2021 eyes, you're like, ah, yeah, <laughs> well, and like it's got to get there, you know, like these mm-hmm. the education has to happen and people have to learn. And I think the the positive takeaway is to acknowledge that it did get there. But looking back at where it started is is a really important thing yeah. to remember because you can't just say that like the X-Men has always been the shining sure. light of diversity in Marvel Comics because even X-Men started as five white guys. I You know, there's a there's a good metaphor that like when you're standing in a river, you know, you're you're standing in a river. If you pick your foot up, you can't put it back down right where it was because the water's constantly moving. 
you know, like we can't look back at what things were and be like, oh, we should have we should have changed that. Well, sure, we, we can't. But what we yeah. can do is exactly what Matt said. We can look back and critique it and say like, oh, shit, like, I guess that was good. It should have been better. But how can we improve upon that now? Um, you know, talking we, we, we did some talking about people of color. Uh, also, women were largely at the periphery of all of the conversations right now. Um, you know, uh, when I had talked about how the Comics Code Authority said women should be on the sidelines or, or a sidekick or whatever, um, women were always paired with leading men. So you always have like your Lois Lanes, your Catwomans, your Mary Janes. Um, Hal Jordan's supervisor is a woman. Uh, so when he's not doing Green, Green Lantern things, he had like a mean supervisor or something like that. Um, so they were never really like a focus. In fact, Marvel's first female superhero was Sue Storm. Um, and, you know, she came with a group. She came with a pack of four. It was it was her and, and you know, three white dudes. Um, and it wasn't until kind of that late 70s during the big like you know, the growing of women's liberation and, and women's empowerment movement that you started to see more traction for female superheroes. And so even then, comic books just tripped over their own dicks, like just getting getting the story right. And they always made men the focus. Um, you know, here would be that 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 trigger warning for sexual assault that uh, Kyle had mentioned Justice League of America. Well, there's a really bad one in Marvel, and that is that um, Ms. Marvel in one of her storylines was raped by some like powerful being gave birth. And then in the story, all the superheroes are like, Oh, you're pregnant. That's great. And she's like, it's not great at all. And they're like, no, it's great. Why wouldn't you be happy to have this child? And they're like, no, she's like, this is terrible. And then in the storyline, she falls in love with her attacker mm. and goes back to like the, no. the limbo dimension. Yeah. With him. Now, now here, here it is. So for what it's worth, they did try to retcon this like years later. They did try and like revisit it, um, you know, where where at least they were like, hey, this is a bad story and here's what really should have happened, blah, blah, blah. But even when they retconned it, it just felt like Carol Danvers was explaining to everyone why they were wrong, which I think is probably a good comparison about how we society, we white people ask for marginalized groups to explain to us what we need to know. Yeah. And yeah. so, I mean, like for all the terrible that they did in that first story, when they tried to correct it, they still did bad. <laughs> but now looking back on it in 2021, it's like, well, I guess they hit the mark on the whole like we are trash and we shouldn't be burdening marginalized groups to teach us how to be better. But there it was. Um, so, yeah, that was like a real thing that happened in the Marvel comics. And um you know, it's it's there then in the 80s, we start to see relaunching of uh, women that are superheroes and they start getting increased powers, better names. A good example is that there's a lot of heroes that have like miss something or um, or something girl and they become something woman. Um, Sue Storm was initially invisible girl. Um, she becomes the invisible woman, which is just like stupid but also obvious but also big well like jean gray was marvel girl forever yeah. and yeah. now she's just jean gray or the or phoenix bat girl well, bat woman all mm -hmm. all around that time yeah well i think at that point that's too you know right around that turn where for jean gray it's like oh you're a psychic girl it's like oh no you're one of the most powerful mutants in mm -hmm. the universe and we are now ramping up to that sort of thing yeah, yeah. 
so that trend for all um, the, the the trend for all the the non-white non-male heroes it continues up through now. So we do start to see growth and development. Um, granted, you just need to look at comic covers from like five years ago to see women's costumes that were likely designed by men, like we talked about. The one that comes to my mind is. If you just Google Supergirl covers, um, I'm we're not putting this in the show notes because your computer doesn't need to see it. Um, there was just a string. I So when I taught my superheroes and societal issues class, I used this one and it's just like the outfit doesn't make sense. There's just a boob cutout. It's yeah. just the, it's just boobs. I was going to say the boob window is is a yeah. big, a big yeah. trope in comics. They wanted to well. make sure you knew that there were boobs under that suit. Yeah. Who's um, the one illustrator who's like notoriously really bad for this? Rob Liefeld. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> Rob Liefeld's bad for everybody. He's an equal opportunity. Uh, <laughs> equal opportunity. Bad artist. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, and so so while all that was very bad and that was, you know, five or ten years ago that it was super bad and it probably still is bad. I haven't looked at a lot of cover, comic book covers lately. Um, it's also worth noting that, you know, in the past five or eight years or so, I'm not sure how long ago it was, we got the 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 uprising of heroes like Jessica Jones. I mean, you watch AKA Jessica Jones on Mar or on Netflix, and it's all about how she's not that stereotypical. Like she doesn't have the boob window. There's an opening episode where she's peeing while she's taking a phone call. Like <laughs> mm -hmm. she 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 drinks. She does whatever she wants to. And I think that, you know, this was at least showing that there has been growth over like what, you know, a, a quote feminine superhero needs to be. Um, I will I will jam like just jam in here. A lot of what we're talking about does start to like wrap up around like post 9-11, like a lot of mm -hmm. a, a lot of costumes and naming conventions got better for female characters. Um, this was around the time Marvel put out the ultimate series, which, um, you know, changed Nick Fury from a white guy to a black character which he has now been um forever since going forward despite 50 years of history as a as a white character um a lot of this you know um you've got you just better we got a lot better of it uh, about it starting post 2001 do you um, but do you think the fact that the movies were out was more of a cause or effect relationship because we've mentioned before the timeline here is x-men released in 2000 yeah and that was the beginning of like the leather mm -hmm. so i was gonna leather. say like i i feel like this has to be in some way influenced by the fact that the movies revitalized mm. marvel and dc specifically uh, and the sure. comic industry as a whole, because I think that when the movies gave Marvel, for instance, the money to keep the lights on, I'm sure that someone said, OK, we can pay the bills. Why have our comics tanked so hard? Mm -hmm. And someone at that point, 50 years later, had to be in the <laughs> room and said, hey, maybe it's all of the problematic things that have done nothing but escalate through the 90s i mean we even talked about it in the ghost rider flavor text that like the 90s were a train wreck for comics and so mm -hmm. yeah. i don't know if it was a cause or an effect or or you know the chicken or the egg but i think that them being revitalized by the movies had to make someone say okay what hasn't been working what needs to change we've got to step into the next century the, here the cynical answer to that 
too, is the 90s also saw a lot of the late 80s and 90s saw a lot of independent comic book um, production Mm -hmm. companies that did break comic codes authority and do their own thing and and work with this and then when the the big two saw their sales depleting over that and then got the money back in their in their wallets to to do something about it just hired these people back to and be like okay do what you did for your for your comic book for us now just yeah and that's that's also a big part of it is they just hired the people who did it right in the 80s and 90s and had them do it for them um well and it's and since you talked about you know bucking the comics code authority like i'll go to this next part because i talk about that and that you know we, we've talked about you know people of color you talked about women so obviously in the past oh let's say 20 15 20 years sexuality has become a much more open part of heroes identity and major comic runs and so it, you know talk about the comics code authority go figure they stood staunchly against lgbtq plus characters in comics for oh, a really long time kidding. i know yeah. you're surprised i know you didn't see that coming um it's worth noting though that marvel dropped their comics code authority affiliation in 2001 they stopped caring about what the comics code authority said um and the all the rest of them, at least the major ones, including DC, went like five or eight years later. By two by 2010, the Comics Code Authority was done. There is yeah. no more Comics Code Authority. Uh, there's That's no so more stamp. Yeah, yeah. I know. So that, it, the fact that they're just like, nah. Yeah. Well, and it, and it goes back to, you know, what Kyle said, that they were on newsstands. And if you didn't have that that stamp of approval, you got put to the back. Well, you don't buy comics or consume comics from newsstands anymore. If you want a physical comic, you're either buying it online or you're going to like a hobby store. I was going to say that was probably more like online shopping was probably more it than anything else. They just didn't didn't need it anymore. Well, and I mean, the same thing happened with the PMRC and the music industry with the explicit Mm. tag on everybody's albums where it hit Mm. a point where you you wanted to listen to the albums with the explicit music because those were the ones you knew were good. And the so, good ones. Yeah, the explicit it, tag had the opposite effect that the Comics Code Authority yeah, did. Yeah. In that it, you, like, artists added, added um, you know, curse words to their lyrics just to get the, the explicit stamp because it boosted sales 20%. Well, and, and if, if nothing else, the, the kids that grew up, you know, reading comics that were Comic Code Authority in, like, the 70s and 80s, are now in their 20s or 30s and they don't necessarily care like they're they're going to buy their comics where they're going to buy their comics um so there wasn't to my research a a major lgbtq plus hero in marvel or dc until 2006 when dc had announced that the new batwoman was a lesbian um go ahead Kyle marvel had a had a gay are you going to talk about North Star? Hero. I'm going to talk about North Star. I'm going to talk about North Star. So you stop talking about okay. North Star. I'll stop talking about North Star. Yeah, I got you. <laughs> and so uh, Batwoman in 2006 was announced as like as lesbian. Um, uh, DC then also went back to retroactively say that the first Green Lantern, Alan Scott from the 40s. So he's one of the three uh, Green Lanterns. They pulled a J.K. Rowling. <laughs> yeah, just yeah, like Dumbledore. Were, yeah, they, they were only less problematic, but also kind of problematic. Anyway, they went back and said that the first Green Lantern, Alan Scott. Oh, yeah, the one from the 40s. He was gay. 
Yeah. Um, I don't know how they <laughs> the said one that. None of I don't you care about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the one that literally wore a cape and held a physical lantern. Gay. I think he had a sword. Um, <laughs> it's also worth noting that that since this time, there have been other heroes that have been identified as part of the LGBTQ community. Um, I didn't realize that in I think it's DC's Rebirth, Wonder Woman is bisexual. Um, but also Harley Quinn, Poison Ivy, we've talked about them. Yeah. Uh, Aqualad, I believe. I don't know if he's gay or bisexual, but he's a member of the LGBTQ plus community. Um, and of course, there's probably a lot more from DC, but I'm just not as familiar with them. I think um, the Wonder Woman one is that they they have made all Themyscarans uh, bi is yeah. what it is. OK, sure. Yeah. Now, in a in a much more upsetting uh, take marvel had a quote no gays in the marvel universe policy until a guy named jim shooter departed in 1980s now i don't know anything ab- i know one thing about jim shooter and that he was responsible for a no gays in the marvel universe policy <laughs> and that's all i need to know about jim shooter that's i didn't enough. look up anything else about jim shooter. i know jim a Shooter's little to me i know a little more about jim shooter and is th- it better no it's okay it's that jim shooter was was such an offensive stereotype that that I mean, what you said happened was they were like, okay, we we obviously can't do this right. So we're just not going to do it, not figure yeah. out how to do it. Um, they did bring Jim Shooter back um, in 2001 or two a, as a gay character still. And he was much better then. But the... the Wait, the, say Jim, what you said again? Jim Shooter's... Jim Shooter's a character, not a real guy. Jim Shooter's a writer. Was a writer. Oh, he's a writer. Yeah. Never mind. Yeah. Scratch all of that <laughs> from we'll the cut, record. We'll cut there, all that. Marvel had a Marvel had a like a a gay cowboy character in the sixties or seventies that was so offensive that they were just yes. like, we no, we're done with that until yeah. two thousand one when they when they fixed it. Yeah, Marvel. So. So starting in the 90s, uh, Marvel would put an adults only logo on comics that did feature a solo gay character just to try and like avoid fire from conservative groups. Um, you know, this it would include the, the one example that, that I was able to find included a story about Captain America rescuing a man trying to save his, quote, roommate, um, <laughs> who then once Captain America saves this man's quote roommate uh the man refers or says that his love for his friend is just like captain america's love for his girlfriend um the short version is that in this comic they never said gay and so that was apparently enough to get past the control f search of the conservative groups that were getting mad about these sort of things so um anyway there's that that's what marvel was doing now kyle had mentioned north star so canonically in marvel the first openly gay character from Marvel was North Star of Canada's Alpha Flight. And so it is reported that he was planned to be gay when he was created in 1979, but was revealed as gay in 1992. I don't know how you prove it. I don't know if you go back and look at his 1979 comic and be like, ah, yeah, that's if you that can thing contextualize he... it or not. Yeah. 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 If, I may, if I may interject with the timeline, the AIDS crisis was happening around that time. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the AIDS crisis culturally, you know, turned the gay community into the boogeyman. So yeah. that makes that actually makes sense. That tracks. Um, another important thing about North Star. So if you've never heard of North Star before, that is understandable. Um, the way that you probably have heard or seen North Star is that in August 2012, North Star was featured on the cover of an issue uh, in a wedding with his partner. There's a very famous cover of North Star and his partner. I forget who his partner is. Um, 
being married and it's a it's a very like i think that cover won some awards too it was everywhere in 2012 it was a a really big deal which i mean is right along with the with the passing of same-sex marriage so i mean that's that that again society and comics go hand in hand um so much like people of color and women members of the lgbtq plus community they've slowly become more prominent in some of the long standing stories that were once just fully dominated by straight white men. Um, a couple relevant right now examples in the current MCU. I believe that Tessa Thompson has said that her character Valkyrie is bisexual. Um, I said, I, I put in my own notes. Don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty it's, positive that that is a thing. I, I also don't quote me on this. I think it's because Tessa Thompson is Tessa Thompson is, and I think, I think that's why that is and I, canon. I think they danced around it for a couple mm-hmm. years too, mm-hmm. and finally, yeah. like in the last year or so, um, Mar- Disney let them yeah. be like, yeah, sure, like, sure. When, yeah. Like, why not? Like, yeah, sure. it yeah. doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't matter. This um, does not damage the character in any way. Right. Uh, some other relevant right now examples. So uh, Wiccan, Scarlet Witch's son, canonically in the comic books, he is in a romantic relationship with Hulkling, um, which is worth noting because one of those two characters is already in the Marvel Universe. And the other one is rumored to join eventually because we're going to get young Avengers at some point. Um, lastly, a super relevant right now example in the last month or so, Marvel has unveiled its 12 covers that they'll feature in the Marvel's Voices Pride series. Um, and that would include covers for characters like Iceman, Mystique, She-Hulk and more. Some other characters that I wasn't very familiar with that are just members of the LGBTQ mm-hmm. plus community, which I forgot. Iceman is, Iceman is included in that. Group. They retconned that right recently, right? That's a recent retcon. Yeah, yeah I believe yeah. so. I, I think that I, obviously there there came a point where where culture kind of turned a bit and they're like, how what heroes do we think like fit this? I don't want to say like a stereotype because that's not the answer, but like what hero stories can like can help support this community because it makes sense. It's not a retcon. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't go back and change like 60 years of, of his history. It's a it's a reboot con. They right. did a it's soft because they it's did because a soft they, reboot he, yeah. because they brought back young Iceman. I, yeah. I, I remember mm-hmm. that as soon as I said it. Yeah. X-Men. I love X-Men. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and so I think great. I think Bobby's also one of the most powerful X-Men. Like he's yeah, also he's in another like top tier Omega, power, he's another Omega level mutant. Pretty yeah. wild when you see him in the original X-Men right. covered and you're like covered All in right, snow you nerd. in the original like <laughs> X-Men cover. You made ice skates cool. Um so I guess the the short version here is that, you know, the same uh, oppressive forces that often held back marginalized groups in society were also holding back those groups in print. Um, And even once those things started to let up a little bit, they still just weren't always handled very delicately. Um, You know, when those groups were making progress, it wasn't without setbacks that honestly, largely all of this could have probably been avoided if when they were putting you know, more focus on marginalized groups in print if they just had marginalized groups at the table, helping like helping the writing, helping the storytelling, yeah. which is, I think, something that has gotten better. I mean, when you look now at the movies that are coming out, um, you know, in in specifically the Marvel Universe, you'll see like they are women led movies. They are people of color that are directing movies. They are, you know, gender swapping heroes because they're like, it doesn't matter. Like yeah. these are stories of heroes that were that were written 40 years ago and we don't need a 10 person team to be nine white men. 
Like we don't <laughs> we don't need yeah. that. No one wants that. Well, it's and like s- our our creative society is finally coming to terms with the idea that no matter how good our collective intentions are, it is really hard, if not impossible, to write from the perspective of one that you just do not have. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so, you know, I guess I guess to put like a bow on at least like the historical context here is that, you know, even if the intentions were often good, they were misguided at least. And so it's good to see that there is growth and development and, and positive movement. And I am excited for a time that, you know, 70 years from now, we're looking back on this time and we're like, oh, that wasn't even enough. You know, like we could we still continue to do better as we go forward. Um, you know, that would be my optimistic take here. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. Thank you for that, Todd, for the for that research. Um, we are going to take a short break. And then um, when we come back, I'm going to lead us through just some some more like specific examples of, um, I guess, good things comics did and um, where they did hit the mark um, so that this whole episode isn't a complete downer of how (laughs) horrible we've all been throughout history. Um, So we will we will get to that after this break. We've also got a Ding Dang Patreon where you can get yourself some Ding Dang perks like access to our Ding Dang Discord, regular Ding Dang bonus content, weekly Ding Dang live recordings of our second show, The Pluse is Loose, and even the opportunity to commission your own Ding Dang flavor text. You can join up for as low as two Ding Dang dollars, so make sure to tell all your Ding Dang friends. Welcome back. Um, I'm now going to just finish out this episode by running us through some examples i found where i think comics tackled these real world issues pretty well um sometimes working through the comics code authority some of these are are before the comics code authority took took effect um i will be talking this is by no means an exhaustive list um we we could do this this specific topic forever and ever and and not run out of things to talk about because there are thousands of issues of comic books and they all did the pulled from the headlines um style of writing at some point in time so they there'd be no end of topics covered um but these are ones i found that i wanted to talk about um and um i just want to also reiterate at this point these are not going to be perfect examples of perfect um, inclusion, progressivism, etc. Um, this goes back all the way to 1938, but these would be considered um, good for their time, and I think it's worth noting where where steps were made moving the the ball forward. Um, the, there will be topics and words associated with. Um, racially motivated violence, sexually motivated violence, homophobia and sexism in this um next section as well. Um tread tread lightly. We like I said we will try and do the timestamps where applicable um going forward. Um but before I desire, dive into the examples I wanted to discuss, I wanted to get a feel for how my co-hosts have been able to pick out some of this allegory as they've gone through life. Um guys, do you have any specific memories that stand out of a time you 
you were watching something and you're like, oh, that's that's like the the real life thing that <laughs> that happens. Um, it's fine if you don't. It just. Yeah, I'll I can start. Um, so I'm going to speak a little bit on personal experience, but mostly I'm going to quote other people. Um, so listeners may recall um, Elise Knorr, who was on our show a couple of months ago. Um, Elise has been on a number of podcasts, but Elise, like like Todd, uh, which is an interesting through line, has also taught a number of social sociology type uh, co- uh, collegiate courses dealing with comics. And Elise um, has been on a couple number of podcasts, and we'll, we can link it in the show notes. This is me reminding Todd to put in a link to the show notes right here. <laughs> Um, uh, Elise had a really good bit about how the X-Men is an allegory for, for life, at, life as LGBTQ. Um, and even before the times, like even in the nineties, like you think back to the original cartoon, um, Rogue is definitely like one that comes to mind as somebody, I think the, the original 2000 movie dealt with this kind of, it kind of t- touched on this, the idea that like, you know, Rogue can't turn her powers off and, rogue um rogue rogue's arc even in the old 70s 80s comics or like when she was first introduced had to come to terms with who she is and rogue's entire character arc is i i will not be happy until i can accept myself for who i am because i cannot change i will never change who i am these this is my power this is my this is like who i am and it while it is not it's not explicitly saying that rogue is queer, but it doesn't, but it's, but it's that same idea. And I think again, like what I've heard is a lot of people in a lot of people in the queer community will, um, you know, connect with characters like rogue and also mystique and beast and, you know, the the characters that can't quote, turn themselves off. Queer coded is the, the term you're looking for. Um, Thank you. Yes. So again, not to speak from obviously not to speak from experience, but I think that's a really cool thing about X Men, and it was a very '90s thing to you know say without saying it, right? Saying yep. you're saying the saying the saying the quiet part, not saying the quiet part out loud, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. You know. I think um, I have I have two that that stuck out to me as I consumed the media that that brought them to me. Um, so the first was if you watched Marvel's Luke Cage. Um, there were two mentions, I think, of uh, of Greek organizations who are part of the Divine Nine, which are the nine historically black uh, fraternities and sororities in fraternity and sorority life. And um, I forget what the specific references were, but um, they did reference characters being like canonically in these Greek organizations, oh. which like having worked with Greek organizations or if you know anyone who's been a member of a Divine Nine organization or if you've worked with them at all. Um, a lot of people, I think, find identity in their Greek organizations. However, if you went to a historically black college or university and you joined a historically black fraternity or sorority, that becomes a part of your life. Um, they are uh, people that join organizations uh, that are part of the Divine Nine, I would say, have tighter fraternal bonds than than anyone else that I know. And so I think it was pretty neat to see them take a story that featured a black hero and then bring some canonical like black culture to that that a lot of people identify with. Um, the other one that I thought was really interesting is that obviously Black Panther still remains as one of my favorite Marvel movies that I had seen. 
And uh, after watching it, I was looking up, you know, how they built those tribes, like how they identified those tribes, made them what they were. And um, if you go and look, they actually took cultural influences from African tribes into many of the tribes from Black Panther. Obviously, like there's high tech technology that goes into it. That's just, just you know, fiction. But um, there are a lot of like very real African influences that were consulted and brought into um, the various tribes in Black Panther. And I always thought that was really, really neat to take bits of the real world mm-hmm. and tie that culture in a like supportive developing way to the stories being told. Yeah, definitely. Um, I had a couple as well. Um, the first one is from one of the like lesser known Marvel TV shows, which was Cloak and Dagger, um, which is an OK show, but does a lot of really good scenes about talking excuse me, does a lot of really good scenes talking about growing up as a black family in New Orleans um, and the influence of like Cajun voodoo and voodoo in like modern day New Orleans culture. It was really, really, really good. And, you know, as a white dude observing, it felt like a really good representation. And I really enjoyed that. Um, But another one that has always really stuck out to me is Daredevil and the way that Mm. Matt Murdock navigates the world as a blind man and uh, is often like looked down upon or uh, underestimated because he is a person living with a disability, uh, whereas in reality, he is a superhero. And, um, you know, like my my mom for years has uh, worked with people with disabilities. And it's something that I've like watched a lot growing up the way that you are looked down upon for your disability when it is really not a disability at all, or, you know, is you're living life in your own way anyway. And um, I think that daredevil has always done a really good job of telling that story. Um, I'm sure there are examples where it hasn't, but it's always seemed really good to me. Uh, And then the last one is, a little bit different than the things we've talked about, but it's the Watchmen uh, with the, you know, who watches the watchers and the police brutality and, and all of that. Obviously, the HBO series, which I have not watched, I know, touched oh, on a lot. It's so good. It's so good. Yeah, it's super high on my watch list. I just haven't gotten to it yet because that list is infinite. But um, <laughs> yeah, the Watchmen as a concept and as a story of much like the boys, you know, power corrupts. Um, and and I think that's a really good allegory to where we are as a country right now. So there you go. Hooray. Everything's a nightmare. <laughs> Great. Um, well, thanks. Thank you guys for that. Um, so I'll dive into my the examples I found and and um, just some of the things I would like to talk about. Um, and I'm going to start by talking about the the whitest man of all, uh, Superman. Um, as our first example of, of weird that they never dropped that tagline <laughs> uh they might have i yeah. listen i don't there's not a better place to say this in here in my research i saw a comic book panel of captain america saying some offensive man some offensive things to a man yeah and so it's... it would not surprise me if at one point in time there was a tagline it was superman the whitest yeah. man we know it's like that that one issue of Superman where he just tells women to smile more. I don't know why that why they thought that was a good idea. Um, so God, it God. it is it is hard to talk about any aspect of superhero comics without bringing up Superman. Um, 
because he was the first he was the first one he was you know the first super hero um in comic books um specifically um fortunately superman's ideals of truth justice the american way had him standing up for marginalized people kind of from the jump um so in 1938 this is before the comics code authority took a took effect came to be whatever um in his very first issue of action comics superman um steps in to free a wrongly convicted prisoner on death row um and kind of does finds finds the the real person but um you know steps in to believes a wrongly convicted prisoner and proves them innocent um protects a woman from her physically abusive husband and exposes a U.S. senator as a war profiteer slash, like, dealing on both sides of, wow. of a war. Um, those are three plot lines from the very first issue of Superman. Um, so this is where I will, I will interject and say, like, Superman was created by, a, by the son of two Jewish immigrants work, who lived in Midwest America. Um, where Superman is supposed to be from, and and very much um, grew up with, especially nowadays, what would be considered like socialist ideas, working class ideals. Um, Superman, it, through, throughout these first few years, um, supported strikes, supported union workers as they uh, more striking. Um, you know love that yeah that's really funny yeah. lots lots of shakedowns of um banks and businessmen trying to um you know reclaim or um repossess homes and properties superman would interject there um just a lot of like the people's hero type stuff where he would um interject on behalf of the the working man um more than anything else um he's superman has stopped racially motivated lynchings in the past um he's you know f helped work like i said helped workers striking for living wages and safe working conditions um and it's very telling that even to this day superman's biggest villain is a billionaire a billionaire president um is, is Lex Luthor is still Superman's number one villain. Um, that all goes back to to his origins. Um, and then one more thing I wanted to touch on is um, in 1946, there was a Superman nationally syndicated Superman radio program. And in uh, June to July of 1946, they ran a month long arc where Superman exposed the Klu the Ku Klux Klan as the racist organization that it is. Um, at the time, the Klan was mostly thought to be like a a social club slash neighborhood watch. Um, People really thought that. That's hard to that's hard to fathom. Right oh now. yeah, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, um, that's that's how they sold themselves. That's they were yeah. you know um, seen a lot at as like. As a neighborhood watch, that's how it. That's what Got it was. It. Yeah, they, you know, the unspoken part was that they were watching for a sure. certain type of person. 
but mm. they had to get those tax write-offs somehow. Yeah, mm. exactly. Um, so, um, the writer of the program at the time, Stetson Kennedy, um, used used the Superman show and the character's popularity to expose um, clan code words and dog whistles. Firstly, um, and reveal the the nature the racist nature of the clan and expose kind of their terroristic activities this was the thing that um brought cross burnings to a lot of white people's attention for the first time uh, a lot of white wow. people not in the clan for the first time mm-hmm. um kennedy's research and the use of the superman character were so effective that for a short time the clan could not recruit new members and was close to folding before it restructured in the 50s, which is a whole other thing. But yeah, for a short time, Superman legitimately in real life beat the clan. Um, that whole radio arc is on YouTube. It's very good if you haven't listened to it. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. That's really, really cool. Um, and while nowadays Superman still more adheres to the Comics Code Authority and the most he'll do speaking out against um anything is is an ambiguous quote about equality and 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 being there for each other um he hasn't done anything quite as anti-establishment as breaking up the clan except in 2020 when they did a comic a comic run of him uh breaking up the clan again um love to see it you love to see it um so that's my that's my short little piece on superman um so now I'm going to a lot of I have a, a race in comics um, section here. A lot of that was covered by Todd already, so I won't rehash much of that. Um, this this was um, most like Todd said, mostly brought on by the Comics Code Authority, um, where most non-white characters were reduced to sidekicks or villains with thick accents and and horrible caricature-esque features um there was um before black panther a couple notable um african-american superheroes the first uh or the first of which like costumed hero was lobo uh made by dell comics in 1954 is that the lobo from like batman and dc lobo um that's gotta be a different lobo right i think it's it's a different lobo okay all right cool um and before that even um while i don't there there weren't any like long-standing runs out of this um there were some superhero comics put out in 1950s philly um by the black owned all negro comics um which was um big enough to to be of note at the time um so let me i i think it it might have been the same lobo that they then changed later because i'm looking at i'm looking at the original lobo cover and it bears some resemblance to the lobo you're referring to but it is certainly not the same it is very possible um because dc dc has bought up a lot of comics Mm -hmm. over the years that dc has gone on to own this um i do want to point out that i i tried really really hard to find um positive representation of asian characters 
mm-hmm. from this time and they do not exist um, man one of the sorry one of the very first like one of the very first like asian characters in dc was a character named samurai yeah who isn't a samurai yeah like oh, um cool. what uh. i what i found again until post 911 um when when some things started to change every asian character was either a a monstrous looking villain um had martial arts powers yeah. and when they didn't have martial arts powers it's cuz they were a japanese character who had yeah. atomic powers um which yeah oh. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah there's a, so there was a whole big dump i think they were all dc characters that came in um, and they were all like non-white characters. And again, like this is back to what we talked about at the time. They probably thought this is great. We're bringing mm-hmm. in like representation. But like one of the characters was El Dorado. Yeah. Who like <laughs> that person wasn't from El Dorado or like my my personal favorite Apache chief. If you watch uh, Harvey Birdman, <laughs> oh. attorney at law, uh, the guy that the guy that grows big. Um, I mean, they I looked up his origin. They don't say he's an Apache. And he was never really given the title of chief. But, you yep. know, really bad. Yep. Um, wasn't isn't Sunfire Japanese? Yeah. And has oh. is, atomic, super, is he super racist? Oh, because he, he's has atomic, atomic powers. powers. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, yep. Yep. Um, and then the last thing I want to touch on here is that um, 1993 was like we talked about earlier. A lot of this started to change. Um, DC acquired the black owned and operated milestone media, um, giving more opportunity to um, black created comic books to come to light. And this gave us uh, this introduced um, static in back in or mm-hmm. into the DC canon, um, which is interesting because in that the inciting event um, the origin of his character's powers and all, and most of the characters in this world's powers was a um, there was a a gang brawl, a turf war among gangs in the the Dakota City, and the Dakota City PD, in order to tag gang members for arrest, late, so they could track them and arrest them later after the event unleashed a radioactive agent into the the grounds they were going to fight. So, yep. Um something goes wrong, the agent explodes and ever anyone who isn't killed in this is mutilated or given powers in some way. Um and then the police try and kill any survivors as a cover up uh the the corporation that made the the radioactive agent Cap kidnaps more people effective to study them, which um, is a lot of parallels to things like the O.J. Simpson trial, the um, the Tuskegee experiment. That no, what's the experiment? Yeah, um, Tuskegee, Tuskegee experiment. experiment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, all of that stuff is is in um, Static's history, which. Um, it was very interesting to me coming from a uh, a black created hero. Um, Static Shock is a very good cartoon that I grew up so with. So good. And it's really good. So good. Um, 
it's on HBO now. And if you're bored and want something new to watch, you should go watch Static Shock. Um, what did Todd drop in here? Um, Apache I'll, Chief. I, again, we're not. I'm. I'm. I'm not going to share this anywhere. But there is a really good cracked article of just some of the most racist moments in mm-hmm. comic books, and like some pretty bad ones. Um, <laughs> it, I yeah i just i won't do the legwork for you listeners you should just really go look at it yourself because there's nothing that i can say yeah or or just don't there is not a single part of this panel that we can repeat on the podcast not a single one no and and this will in no way enrich or uh, Mm -hmm. improve your life in any way shape or form so i'm i'm gonna close close out write us out on a com on the comic book team kind of most closely associated with any civil rights real life allegory, which is the X-Men, um, which we've talked about already. We will talk about them again in the future in this context. Um, the X-Men have been kind of Marvel's just dumping ground for any civil rights issue. Um, that is part of the reason Part of the reason other examples from Marvel are so bad is because X-Men was where they could dump it. Um, But part of that is also is like where X-Men, because of the Comics Code Authority, it is where they were allowed to talk about these issues because they weren't stories of race. They weren't happening to a specific, they weren't happening to black people or whatever they were happening to mutants which are fictional and um is why is also why x-men movies are some of the only pg-13 movies that are allowed to show blood is because it's not human blood it's mutant blood yeah and and weirdly they get around that um that stipulation for pg-13 because they're not human (laughs) i love shit like that like a real lawyer had to argue that in court yeah you know what i mean that's so good we talked about this actually like way back on one of the first episodes of plus is loose with wandavision that like the first couple to share a bed on tv was in the monsters because you could show a couple that wasn't human sharing a bed but you couldn't show a man and woman in bed wild hilarious um so the x-men were not created with the social like with this social commentary in mind literally stanley said in an interview like he was looking for a way to write a new comic team without having to come up with an origin story for each character so he came up with the concept of mutants and the rest was history um However, shortly after their creation in the 60s, as we moved into the 70s, um, they started taking on more of these civil rights-esque stories. Um, Mutant, after the introduction of Luke Cage characters, Luke Cage's character, Mutant kind of became Marvel's N-word, for lack of a better comparison. And... um, extrapolating that out um was the premise for a lot of stories involving mutants they started writing stories on how you know people claiming mutants are dangerous and and how they're oppressed and being kicked out of their homes and things like that um for being 
this different, this other. Um, around this time, Professor X became an allegorical Martin Luther King Jr., um, championing nonviolence towards humans and seeking acceptance through overwhelming good deeds and and you know setting up this very nurturing environment for for his troubled youth he was saving um where magneto kind of became the allegorical malcolm x even if it was an oversimplification of what malcolm x was saying at the time mm -hmm. it was you know like everything else filtered through the white authors that were writing it sure mm -hmm. um but the brotherhood of mutants showed was an example of how marginalized groups can turn to violence and crime when they are shut out of regular society. And even if it's accidentally ends up being a fairly sympathetic look into like how gang culture forms um, and has, you have storylines where like Cyclops does get fed up with doing the, the goody goody stuff and like waiting for humans to accept mutants and goes and joins the Brotherhood of Mutants. Is like, no, we're going to fight for our place in in this world. Um, again, I don't think was the point of what they were trying to do at the time, but it ends up being like a sympathetic look at how people turn to crime and why why crime arises from oppression. Um, this would also be the era that gives us Days of Future Past, which it evokes the internment camps and uh, federally enforced right. ghettos that Japanese and Asian Americans of the 40s and 50s were subjected to. Um, although this was done by giant eye shoot, eye laser shooting yeah. robots and not, you know, yeah. feds. But again, you, you, it's kind of <laughs> like, it's kind of like they're having their cake and eating it too, right? Because yes. like, mm -hmm. if you're yeah. reading it, you get it. Mm -hmm. But on the surface, if you're just skimming it and you're like, you're a you're a government suit, you know. It's yep. just like oh, it's just like a fun story about robots. But mm -hmm. like no, like, yeah, get it. If if you aren't the people being oppressed, yep. who like have to relive yeah. again, like like the 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 you know the the person that I am, like a white male consuming it. I'm like oh, I recognize that's a really terrible thing, but I don't have an emotional attachment to it, much like the people who identify with that story. Whereas it probably hits a little bit different for someone who has been impacted like that and they probably don't find the cheekiness of like oh but it's it's mutant killing robots like that's very different yeah yeah i mean it it's it's the can part of ha you know having your cake and eating it too is yep. like the message does it dilutes the message when you do mm -hmm. do that so yeah it is um interesting um so then moving forward with the rise of the AIDS crisis in the late 80s, early 90s, the X-Men series did start making this shift from being a race allegory to first an HIV AIDS allegory and then later an LGBTQ sexuality mm -hmm. allegory. Um, a lot of it stemming from the stuff Andrew already said, where with like these messages of learning to accept who you are, accepting an unchangeable part of yourself um leads very easily into some of these other points that they're going to make with the X-Men that I'll talk about. Um this change began in in earnest in full kind of a, at in 1988 with the what was at the time a not canon X-Men series. Um it has since mm -hmm. been folded back in. 
uh, the run um, X Men God Loves Man Kills um, kind of started. That this title change. is really good. <laughs> so that, good. That is a wow. that is a title. Um, yeah. So X Men God Loves Man Kills um, is about kind of it's more or less the plot of X X Two the movie, um, yeah. but with some very key things changed from it to make that movie. Um, so it starts out with Magneto investigating the murder of two murdered mutant children. And he finds that they have been murdered by this um, televangelist, fire and brimstone type preacher, Reverend William Stryker. Um, Wait, was mm-hmm. that the first... Was that the introduction of William Stryker? Yeah. <laughs> was that I the did not know that. Was that yeah. the introduction or was that like a reskin of him? I don't know if it was a reskin. Yeah. And I don't know if it was the introduction, but Rep William Stryker, the character, was introduced as a as a reverend televangelist. Yeah, type that's preacher. the first picture that pops up. Um it they changed yeah. him into like former military or whatever he is in the movie for the movie but um the okay. character originally was this reverend First, william Stryker. his character was modeled after jerry falwell yeah, yeah. absolutely yep. he was awesome. as soon as as soon as i saw that there's a picture halfway yeah. down yeah um and so reverend william Stryker is this televangelist who just preaches the extermination of all mutant kind he's Mutants are an abomination in the eyes of God is is the line that kept coming up. Um, it's it, a little bit on the nose. Ain't it, mm-hmm. ain't it just. Um, it is revealed that uh, Reverend Stryker killed his wife and son after she gave birth to, like immediately after she gave birth to him because the son was born a mutant with like an obvious physical mutation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, as as it happens... He killed his wife and kid. Um, and then stop me if, you hear the, if you've heard the rest of this before. Um, after debating Professor X on live TV, Stryker kidnaps Professor X and straps him into a knockoff Cerebro, Cerebro and tries to force yeah. him to kill all of mutant kind. Um, so that is, the, is that the, the second X-Men? I, I did not know that this, it was so closely adapted from this but yes the the second x-men movie is closely adapted from from specifically this so this this very front-facing allegory for um lgbtq people was put into the back burner um as we as comics kind of went through the extreme 90s um There weren't a whole lot of message. There wasn't a whole lot of message in the big two comics at the time, anyway. Let alone them making room for LGBTQ people. Um, however, the allegory for mutants as LGBTQ would get picked up again in earnest with um, Grant Morrison's three-year run of um, the new. Is it the new X Men? Um, revitalizing. He, he re, they revitalized the X-Men in 2001, uh, breathed a lot of new life into the series and a lot of things that continue th- in the X-Men today come out of Grant Morrison's run. Um, it's very good. Um, so Morrison, who would later come out as non-binary, included more themes of religious persecution, 
um, panic caused by not being able to tell who who is a mutant or not, um, or who, you know who is gay or not in this context. And a lot of a lot of the um, more explicit queer coding that remains a part of the X Men to this day all kind of come out of Grant Morrison's run here. Um, I don't have any. We we could do a whole other um, commissioned text on Grant Morrison as a whole. He's a very they're a very fascinating figure in comics. Um, this is all I've got to de- for today. Um, this is all you know, and I I recognize we have a we've left a lot of issues on the cutting room floor. Um, this is where we are going to wrap for today. We have not talked about any of like the stuff Alan Moore gets to in his comics, um, which involve a lot of like who conversations on who deserves power and what what they do with that power. Um, he he also includes a lot of um, the early positive representation of LGBTQ um, topics and comics at the time. Um, specifically in V for Vendetta, he had a big plot, a big plot line involved the, the capture of a, a woman just for being gay. Um, his run on Swamp Thing gets a lot, gets into a lot of like the constructs of male and female as constructs, not as, um, definite truths. Um, Alan Moore is another fascinating, controversial figure in comics that we could do a whole other episode on just him, but we are not doing that today because, because <laughs> we're all tired and, and sad and done. Um, <laughs> if you want an episode on Alan Moore or Grant Morrison, you could go visit us at patreon.com slash debate this cast and throw us 50 bucks one time. We will commission Yes, we can. We will. We will do that for you. Um, So thank you all for listening in to debate this. You can follow along with the arguments on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at debate this cast or on our website at debatethiscast.com. And like Andrew said, we have a Patreon. Um, If you want to commission a flavor text of your own or just want um, just can't wait that off week we take um, once a month. Um, you can go and subscribe at our $5 level and unlock the fourth Tuesday where we, where we uh, put out our special episodes in that gap week. Um, so please, please check us out at uh, patreon.com slash debate this. And if you want to support the show until next time, I'm Kyle Harper. I'm Todd. When the X-Men introduced James Proudstar, a native American X-Men, he was wrestling a Buffalo Thomas. I'm Matt. It's always who watches the Watchmen and never how watches the Watchmen, (laughs) Cole. And I'm Andrew. I really am sorry to all women, Henderson. (laughs) And we're saying thanks for debating with us. And if you think we're wrong, you can come fight us behind the swing sets, nerds. Mm